0: Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I graduated in 1983 from high school with uh, like a two-point-something grade point average. I wasn't the best of students. I didn't really uh, focus on it all that much, unfortunately. And I remember I, I kind of gave my dad fit. He said, I don't ask for a lot. He said, all I ask for is nothing below a C. No D's and below. About every semester, I'd have one class that was a D, and it was usually a different class. Every time, I would just maybe think, well, maybe I should pull that up a little bit, so I'd focus on that class and I'd drop another one, you know. And so I didn't graduate with a stellar grade point average. When I graduated from college 10 years later in 1993, not because I crammed a four-year degree into 10, but because <laughs> because I went later, after four years of college, I graduated with a, pre, a 3.875 grade point average. Now, what was the difference? between the two point something or other low twos and high threes. Well, I would tell you a lot of it was fear <laughs> but when I went to college, I was already married I had our third child was on its way. During college, I had to work to support my family. We were also involved in helping with a youth ministry and going to school full-time and so it was a, it was a huge load. Because of that, I was really fearful of letting anything slip. I was afraid of not being ready for anything because I knew that if I started to get behind I would not it would be overwhelming. I would not be able to catch back up. I'm a slow reader on top of those other things and so I just knew I would really be stuck if I started to get behind. And so because of that, I got very organized. I organized everything, to even outside reading. If a teacher said, you got 500 pages of outside reading to be done by the end of the semester, I would go back and divide it all up and I knew exactly how many pages I had to read every day. I organized it all because I was afraid of slipping behind. In four years of college, there was never a test that I wasn't ready for. There was not a a paper that wasn't done. There was not an assignment, even outside reading, that I wasn't prepared for. And so the the main difference between a 2.0 at a a schooling that was much easier and a high three point grade average 3.8 something um, in a school that was much harder and much more uh, requirements was my focus on being prepared. It was just on being ready. It was just organizing my daily events around these things that were coming up in my life so that when they got there I was prepared. That was really the only difference. When I was in high school I was prepared to goof around. I was prepared to have a good time. But when I was in college it was business and I, I had to take care of it. Well Jesus in this parable is doing something for the disciples to help them live in an anticipation of His return. As we look at the very end of the matter, Jesus once again emphasizes what He emphasized through a lot of chapter 24, and that is, watch therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour. Now remember the context here. The context is that the abomination of desolation that happens in the middle of Daniel's 70th week has already happened. The sun and the moon have already been darkened and turned to blood and stars have fallen. So there's a lot of signs that Jesus has given them to look for. And then now, He says, now it could be any moment. Nobody knows the day. Nobody knows the hour it could be coming any time. And his message to the disciples is simply this: Be ready. What does it mean to be ready and not ready? To be ready means to be to be saved, to have put your trust in Jesus Christ, and you're walking with Him in your life. And we looked at that last week. We saw the end of Matthew chapter 24. We saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it talks about the people that are going to be surprised by Christ's return are people that are walking in darkness, that are not children of light. They're not they're not saved individuals. They're Not believing individuals. That's who's going to be surprised by Christ's return. His followers aren't going to know exactly when his return is either. But they are going to know when it's getting close. They're going to be anticipating it just as Noah was in the ark anticipating the flood and the unbelieving world around him was caught completely by surprise. That is a good picture of what the disciples, what the followers of Jesus Christ will be like at that time. But you know what? I was thinking about this this week and it really doesn't matter what time you're living in. This parable is a good lesson for us. Because you know what? We, we really always need to be ready for Jesus Christ. We don't know how we're going to meet Him. We might be here when Christ comes back but you know what the Bible also tells us? Boast not yourself of tomorrow because you don't know what a day may bring forth. It tells us, what is your life? In James, it tells us our life is a little vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You know, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to be around tomorrow to be able to make plans to do this and that. Now you have to kind of you plan like you're going to live. But in some senses, we ought to live like we're going to die, like we're going to meet Christ. Sometimes death catches us by surprise. We ought to always be ready to meet our Maker. Whether it's us dying and going to Him, or whether it's Him returning and coming to get us, we ought always to be ready. And that's Jesus' message to his disciples and to us as His disciples as well. Now, as we look through this parable that He gives, there's four essential elements that I'd like to point out. Well, what does it involve in being ready? Well, the first element that is involved in being ready is the element of intimacy. He uses a parable surrounding one of the most intimate events that we experience on this earth, and that is the event of marriage. And so he uses this picture of marriage, and a Jewish marriage had three phases to it. There was the, the arranged part of the marriage where the fathers would get together and they would make a deal between them two and arrange the marriage between their, a son and a daughter here and, and line that up. And then the next part was the betrothal. They would get the young man and the young woman together, and they would come together, and they would make the engagement. From the time where they made the engagement, to break that engagement took a divorce. It's it's exactly what we see at this Christmas season. When Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, it says that he decides to put her away privately or to divorce her quietly because he doesn't want to make a public spectacle out of her, but he thinks it's somebody else's child. And so he doesn't want a wife that's bearing somebody else's child either. And so he's going to divorce her quietly. Now, the betrothal period usually lasted a few months, possibly up to a year. And the purpose of it was that after the son became engaged to this fiance, then he would go back home and he would devote himself to His trade that He was learning, and to building a home for Him and for her. And so that when it was all ready and the Father said, okay, now you're ready, He would get together His groomsmen and they would go on this kind of a parade to the bride's house. And they would get to the bride's house and she'd have her bridesmaids ready. And He would get her and then take her back to His house. And this this wedding ceremony would take like a week sometimes, depending on what all the family arranged. Jesus takes this most intimate of our human celebrations and relationships. And He continually, through the Bible, uses that to describe His relationship with His church. We see in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has already alluded to this. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's making this statement to the answer of a question of, How come your disciples don't fast? And he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so Jesus says, the answer to why my disciples don't fast is because it would be inappropriate right now. The sign of fasting, going without, is a sign of, of, well, it's that, going without, mourning, pleading for something. And that's a wedding is not the place to do that. Jesus said, well, the bridegroom's with them. What do we celebrate? That's when all the best food's pulled out. The best drink is pulled out. It's not a time of mourning and of fasting. It's a time of feasting. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist is confronted. And somebody comes to John and says, did you know that that guy's gaining more disciples than you are now? Like a kind of a competitive thing here. And John answers them basically that there's no competition. And he says this, "...the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete." So John tells him, I'm not begrudged that he's getting more disciples. In fact, I'm excited that He's getting more disciples. I'm pointing my disciples to Him. And I'm, I'm like the attendant of the bridegroom. He's the one that gets the bride. It's His day. It's His moment. It's His bride. It's all about Him. My joy is in His happiness in His marriage. But again, it points to that intimate relationship between Christ and Christ. And his people. The Apostle Paul felt the same way in his ministry. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul would say, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now what's happening here is the Corinthians are listening to some false teaching, and they're being drawn away from Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, I feel jealous have this divine jealousy about you being driven away from Christ. But notice, it's not about being pulled away from Paul. It's about them being pulled away from Christ. So the Apostle Paul looks at himself like a matchmaker. Like he's made this match between the Corinthian people and Christ. He's brought them to Christ as Christ's wife. Because the church is the bride of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, he would teach more explicitly on it and use it as an example for us. He says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He would go on to say just a few verses later therefore a man shall leave his father and mother hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's talking about our our human relations between a husband and a wife and how God designed us to become one flesh and there's to be such an intimacy, such a unity between us that we are actually one. And he uses that and he says, I'm speaking of the mystery of Christ in his church. Christ has this level of intimacy with his church. It's not about religion. It's not about going through the rituals. There are rituals, just like in Christmas, we have traditions that we do. But the whole point of the traditions is to relate. Relate. To have something that we relate around and that enhances our relating to one another and to Christ. There's an intimacy that he expects. It was even that way in the Old Testament. God had a heart for His people and wanted an intimacy with His people. In Isaiah, in chapter 62, He says, You shall be no more termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and you and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. It gives us this picture of God being as this excited young husband over this new wife that he's joined together with. Isn't that awesome to think about? It. That's the way Christ thinks of you. That's the way Christ thinks of us as His church, as His people. We are the bride of Christ. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, it says, And I will betroth you to me forever, and will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. You know, I remember leading up to Lisa and my marriage. Uh, the day before, my, my parents had come to visit and stuff, because they lived about five hours away on the other side of the mountains, and they came over for the, for the wedding and a, a little bit early so we could spend some time together. And, and the day before, I remember I was out with my dad and with Lisa's dad, and we were running around doing errands and, and enjoying the day together. And we pulled up to their house at one time, and they went to run in, and my dad turns around to me, and he says, you stay put, you're not allowed to see her today. And I thought, that's a bummer. I'd been seeing her every day, every minute of the day that I could. That was easy to do because we worked together. And after we got off work, we'd take the bun-wasted Arby's and we'd walk down along the river and feed the ducks and stuff. And we just spent as much time as we could together. And then at the end of a date, when I would take her back home, I would say, Now, you go sit by the phone because if I woke up her dad when I called that late, there was trouble. So she had to be able to pick it up as soon as it made any noise. But I would get home and I would call her and she'd be falling asleep on the other end of the phone. I'd be like, Lise, Lise, wake up. You know, I was just spending as much time with her as I could. But then this day before the wedding, I wasn't allowed to see her. And I remember the next day, they put me in a room where I'm supposed to get ready to get married. And, you know, getting ready for me takes all ten minutes. And and then she had her room with her attendants and everything. But you know what? At one point, I'm just kind of—it's—it's it's getting to me. I want to—I want to see her, and I'm not allowed to yet. But I asked a question, something about her, and they said, "Oh, she's not here yet." What? <laughs> she was late. Can you believe that? <laughs> now it wasn't her fault. Her dad had to go get her, and he drug his feet about going to pick her up. But, but um, you know what? There's just that—that that desire, just to—to to be with her. All the time. And and I've relived some of it again recently when I went to Ukraine and I was gone for two weeks and she was out in Seattle. I was counting the days and they were ticking off really slow because there's this intimacy in our relationship and there's a desire to be with her. And that's what the Bible continually uses to describe God's relationship with us. He uses this, this wedding feast and the wedding is finally going to happen and the parade is coming, but you don't know exactly when it's going to be. The guy gets his attendance together, and they start marching, and news travels, and then the, the gal's getting ready and she 's got to get her attendance ready, and everybody's in, in the state of anticipation, and you don 't know exactly when it's going to come, but he 's on his way, and they 're just ready, or at least they're supposed to be. In fact, it 's unnatural at a point like that to not be highly anticipating and looking forward to this, and that 's exactly what Jesus uses, this most intimate of celebrations and relationships to describe. His relationship with us. And you know what that means, is that that's part of what it means to be ready. We're looking forward to His return. And you know what, sometimes we get so caught up in the pleasures of this life that we can become content with that and not be looking forward to His return. We can do like C.S. Lewis said, he said, our problem is not that our passions are so great. Our problem is that our passions are so easily satisfied. He said we're like a child that is content making mud pies in the slum because he doesn't know, understand what it means to have a vacation at the beach. When Christ comes back, we're going to experience a relationship with Him and things from Him that are going to take the passions and the pleasures that we get to enjoy now and they're going to be greatly diminished. It's going to be so much better to be with Him. And we should be anticipating, looking forward to that, much like a bride does to her coming marriage and her coming bridegroom. Now, I know that in this parable, it doesn't use the bride as the example. In fact, a lot of commentators have struggled over the fact that the bride isn't even mentioned. But here's why I think that is. It, it is definitely requiring this level of intimacy because look at when the foolish virgins come back and they knock on the door and they say, Let us in. And he says, Who are you? And they tell him who they are and he says, I don't know you. So it's about knowing Christ. It's not about religion. It's not about doing all the right things. It's about knowing Christ. It's about that intimate relationship. But if that's the case, why doesn't He use the bride's anticipation of His coming rather than all these... um, They're not even called bridesmaids in the passage, but we kind of assume that that's what they are. This is what I think the reason is. If you use the bride, there's only one bride. There's no room for comparison. And He's going to take five wise bridesmaids and five foolish bridesmaids And the whole point of his story, he uses that to make this comparison of those. And it's a very simple comparison. These ones weren't ready. These ones were ready. But you can't really make that point with the bride because she's just one person. But I also think that's exactly why he leaves her completely out of the picture. Because the church is the bride. We're not bridesmaids. We're the bride. Well, you see, that's the nature of a parable. A parable never has all the ducks in a row. But we see in the parable that he chose, in the elements of the story, we see this very intimate relationship. And in the end, the people that are not allowed into the wedding feast are people that, I don't know you. You don't have that intimate relationship. So if we're going to be ready for Christ, ready to meet Him in death or ready to meet Him at His return, we need to be intimate with Him. He's not just looking for a group of people that can gather together once a week and sing some songs. He's looking for people that love Him. But not only is there intimacy, this next one is very closely related. is authenticity. What do you see when you look at those bridesmaids? All the bridesmaids had the right torch or lamp. All the bridesmaids on the external, they all looked the same. They all, they all looked like they fit the bill. But what was it that was missing? With the foolish ones, they didn't have the oil for the torch. What good is a torch without oil? The torch is useless without the oil. You know, I've, I've experienced that kind of thing a few times in my life. I, I remember working on a, a bathroom one time. I was doing some plumbing. I went and I got the stuff that I needed to work on the bathroom. I got to, I got all the fittings for, for hooking the pipes together and I got the glue and I got the tools and I get there and you know what I forgot? The pipe. Fittings. 90 degree elbows, 45 degree elbows, all these things. No pipe. You know how much good a fitting does you with no pipe? Zero. I remember once uh, last year, Lisa and I were going to Go. Uh, we love to be on the lake and stuff in the summer. And we said, you know what? We got a little time. Let's run up and go uh, out on the lake this evening and go fishing. And so uh, we went up to go fishing. We stopped up at the gas station, gassed up the boat, went in and bought bait, got all ready, got up there, put the boat in the water, and I hadn't even pulled my truck off the ramp. And you know what I realized? I'd pulled the fishing poles out in the garage before we left. So up there on the lake with no fishing poles. It's hard to fish with no fishing poles. You know what? This fall, somebody brought a four wheeler to the to the shack with no gas. You know how fast a four wheeler goes with no gas? Don't worry, Zach. It's our secret. <laughs> That's the point that Jesus is making here. These what what good is what good is palm milling fittings without pipe? What good is uh, a fishing trip with no fishing poles? What good is these torches without oil? See, they had all the externals down. In fact, most commentators say this is a parable about the church visible. Within the church visible, everybody that considers themselves part of the church, you have people that are legitimate believers and illegitimate believers. In other words, people that really believe with their heart and people that are just going through the motions. Half of them have not only the externals down, but they got the fuel that burns the fire. And in half of the bridesmaids, they've got everything that's the show, but they don't have the fuel that fuels the fire. The New Testament warns us about that in several places. Second Timothy, uh, the Apostle Paul would write to Timothy and talk about people that have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. In 2 Corinthians 13, he would tell the Corinthian church to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or you do not realize this is about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Inside of yourself, check and make sure that you genuinely have Christ within you. Do you know Him? Does He know you? Do you have that intimacy? Is this real in your life, or is it just a show? Jesus has done that on many points in the book of Matthew. It's been a common message for Him. Remember in, in chapter 13? when he talked about the different kinds of soils that the seed of the Word of God went into. And some of the soils reacted in different ways. Some of them sprang up quickly. But then when persecution came, they died out. Some fell among weeds and the cares of this world choked it out. And some fell along the path and got carried away on the road and got carried off by Satan. He said only one soil, the good soil was the one genuine believers. And they were, that was where the seed sunk in and it grew and it produced fruit in their lives. It changed their life. He so said, that's where it is. He went on to tell another uh, parable in the same chapter about a farmer that sowed wheat in his field. And then an enemy came and sowed weeds, planted weeds among it. The harvesters say, well, what are we going to do? And the answer is, let them both grow up. We'll harvest it in the end and we'll burn the weeds and we'll harvest the good crop into our barn. And Jesus said, that's exactly what my kingdom is like. There's going to be people that are genuine believers that bear fruit in their lives. And there's people that are going through the motions. And have all the show, but nothing, but not the reality. There's nothing authentic about their faith. There's nothing real about who they are in Christ. Well, he made another comment about, remember where he said, enter through the narrow gate? Because broad is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And he said at that, that day, many people would come to him and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these miraculous things in your name? And all these things. And he said, my answer to them will be depart. I never knew you. Not only is there authenticity, but the other element that we see in being ready is a a bit of independence. Now in this, I don't mean independent from God, because our whole salvation experience is resting in the fact that we are completely dependent upon Christ. But we do see an independence in the sense that, you know, we can't borrow it from somebody else. In this parable, when they realize he's here and we don't have any oil... The foolish ones turn to the wise ones and they say, let us have some oil. And the wise ones say, there's not enough. They can't provide the oil that you need for your life. And it's the same way in our life. We can't borrow it from somebody else. You can't lend it to your children or your grandchildren. Our children and our grandchildren got to come to faith in Christ just like you came to faith in Christ. Now, you can do everything you can, try to share your faith with them, lead them there. But the fact of the matter is, there's no, in a sense, second generation Christians in heaven. Everybody is born again into heaven on their own, into God's kingdom. They're born anew, or they don't make it. They have to come to trust in Christ. The people, that, the virgins that spent the time that was needed, that spent the resources that was needed, that invested themselves in, in being ready, making sure they had the oil, had the torch, had everything that they needed, they were ready. If you cultivate in your life this passion for Christ and this faith in Christ, you will grow in your faith. And it takes time to grow in our faith. It doesn't take time to begin faith. That's instant. But it takes time to grow in our relationship with Him. You know, every once in a while I hear people talk about, you know, they're not ready for Christ in their life. They're going to, maybe someday, they're going to live up their life how they want now, going to live in sin now or whatever, and they'll bring Christ into their life later. You know what? I'd, I'd dare to say probably not so much. Because you reject Christ now, and the Bible always points to now. It says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. But when people do that, think, you know what? I'll just wait until I'm toward the end of my life, and then I'll invite Christ in my life. It backfires. I'm not saying there's never been a deathbed conversion. I'm sure there have been. But I think that it's probably more the exception than it is the rule. Because you know what? Every time that you turn your back, you're confronted with a needing Christ in your life, and you turn your back on it, it gets easier to turn your back on it. If you don't desire Him in your life right now, what makes you think you're going to desire Him then? You don't. You don't. Not desiring Him now and not choosing Him now only grows to less and less of a desire for Him than you may have had to begin with. And when you come to that end, if you are so fortunate to know that you're at that end before it's actually there, then you know what chances are you still aren't going to receive them then either. You're probably still going to be trying to hang on to now. We have to stand independently before God, which leads us to the last point. The last essential element is that there is an urgency to being ready. Those foolish virgins, they're there and they need the oil now and they can't get it from the wise ones. And so they say, go to the dealer and go get it. Well, it's too late. It's over. This is over. And they come back and they knock at the door. They're expecting to get in. They knock at the door and He asks at the door, Who are you? I never knew you. When Christ comes back, it's too late. When we die, it's too late. God gave you a whole host of opportunities coming up to that point. But when we die, it's too late. You know, I run into this once in a while when I'm dealing with, uh, with funerals. is one place that I run into it. And people kind of expect me to pray for the person that is deceased. You know what? I don't pray for dead people. Now, don't get me wrong. There's been times where I've thanked God for people that are dead. Does that make sense to me? But I don't pray that God would do something with somebody that has already died. Because I know that whatever is happening there is already done. And any prayer, on anybody's part, isn't going to do anything else after that. That's part of the point of this parable. There's a reason to be ready. There's an urgency to being ready because there are no more second chances after this point happens. Another place is, uh, with our little kids. With our little kids in release time. When we go to our prayer time at release time, uh, the little kids are always full of prayer. Uh, they, they got all kinds of things that they want to pray for. And, um, and I try to keep, you know, the pets to a minimum and stuff like that. <laughs> Those are a big prayer item. And, and kids, we could pray all day for pets. Past and present. But another thing that kids often want to pray for is a grandma or grandpa that has already died. And we, we pray with the kids. But what we do is we pray for the family. See, it's the same as with funerals. Funerals aren't really aren't for the dead person. They're for the people left behind. It's an opportunity for closure. It's an opportunity to say goodbye. It's an opportunity to, to celebrate the life that you've enjoyed in your life. It's really about the people that are there. So when our kids pray for pray for my grandma, pray for my grandpa, you know what I pray for? I pray for them. I thank God that they had a grandma and grandpa that they loved. And I pray for their family that's going through sorrow with losing their grandma or grandpa. But the the whole point of the parable is there's there needs to be an urgency to be being ready for Christ. Because we don't know what the day holds. We might not make it through the day. We haven't seen the signs that lead us right to the end of Christ's return yet or to that moment when Christ's returning to where it's every day or every hour yet but we don't know what our tomorrow is we don't even know what our today has in store for us and so we need to always be ready